Hello, I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. And this is the Standing With Stones Megalithic Podcast. This podcast is only made possible by monthly donations from our listeners who have supported us through Patreon.com. You can become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash standingwithstones. So welcome to the 10th Standing With Stones monthly podcast and the first for 2019. Indeed, this month, after a question from within the Standing With Stones Facebook community prompted us, we're going to be looking at the beaker people and trying to lift the veil on how these enigmatic people seem to herald a total change in British culture. So, starting the new year with new findings, what is it that is uh, pushing back the boundaries for the first show of 2019, Mr. Soskin? Well, you know, this one isn't going back very far at all. And on top of that, it probably won't even be a surprise to anybody. But uh, it's so still worth mentioning. <laughs> well, it, it's because um, it's because of our thing with cows. We do like cows. Um, evidence has emerged in the Balkans. That was a bit. Enigma- we like cows. Using- well, yeah, you know what I mean. Um- <laughs> Well, I might, I might know what you mean, but I don't know if our listeners know what you mean. Yes, well, when you think of the amount yes, of times over with the, the last months, we've, uh, yes. <laughs> the, the, the number of times in the last months that we have referenced, uh, you know, particularly from isotope research yeah. that they've found out yeah, that, you yeah, know, yeah. cattle here, there, It does tend to go really. that way. Yes, yeah. it's an extension <clears throat> of that. And, uh, yes, in the Balkans, they've, um, they've found evidence to show that people were using cattle for heavy work as much as 2,000 years earlier than previously thought. So that pushes the practice of using cattle for um, as labourers, if you like, uh, back to around 6,000 BC in mainland Europe. And it's, uh, it is, it's, that, it's that. It's yet another pointer towards the widespread use of cattle in human history. Another marker in the sand. You know, you know mm. it's, it's, it's really funny, really. I mean, you could almost say that, you know, the origins of anything we look at are, are getting nudged back in time one way or another. Then again, um, you, you couldn't really nudge it forward, could you? I suppose. <laughs> but you know what I mean? You, I do know what you mean. Yeah. Anyway, but what what's, what what what's uh, what's the evidence that, that proved the cattle were being used for their muscle power? Do you know what? Good question. I must admit that when I first saw the article, uh, and I imagined that they had found uh, you know a yoke or a harness or, or something like that. Yeah. But actually, it's it's foot bones. Um, and uh, which oh. shows it, 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 yeah, it's interesting. It's yeah. not necessarily about. Uh, you know, yoked animals, uh, that kind of burden. Yeah, at all. Be, I mean, um, yeah, that would be really it, something if you found found a, a perishable item like that. It, can you imagine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But um, but it's so pretty anyway, sophisticated. Yeah, it, it, the researchers from UCL they took samples from eleven different Neolithic sites throughout the Balkans, looking specifically at the foot bones, because the inner part of the foot is associated with load bo- uh, bearing. And so that will show extra bone growth 
if the animal has been used, if, basically, if it's been put under more habitual strain, like a, like a medieval body archer, weight. you can you can tell, yeah, like, yeah, there's that, more exactly bone that. growth, yes, yeah, in in the exactly uh, that. left, um, yeah, no, no, I'm right-handed, <laughs> sorry, in the right in the right arm, <laughs> the uh, the drawing arm, yeah. Well, it's interesting that the research doesn't seem to be changing the thinking about the origins of ploughing, uh, for example. Uh, Etc., which ev- uh, they, everybody thinks is still considerably later. So it, it really does mean that people were using cattle, well, in, in a similar way, really, to the way we use shire horses, you know, even now. Uh, so, oh. you know, it, it most likely for dragging huge timbers around for construction, that sort of thing. I suppose the question is why can't ploughing be pushed back? Um, at the same time, I is this a, is this to do with farming Probably. and the evidence of farming and the kind of produce I suppose that's being yes um, uh, farmed or not? Yeah, yes, so, I guess so. So, so in the absence there's, there's of no that, evidence. yeah, dragging huge timbers or huge whatever around, oh, or stones, or Lord knows what. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what what what's uh, what are the reasons in particular why this research is focused on in the eastern in Eastern Europe? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it's like a lot of things. It's just it just happens to be where something was first noticed. Okay, um, uh, th- there was a, a similar foot bone, cattle foot bone, uh, was found in Syria. Um, where they saw the signs of this, but just having the one example, and it wasn't really conclusive. And it was when they were doing excavations in Serbia and Croatia and uh, oh, a couple of other places around uh, around there that they were turning up a number of these cattle bones that were clearly showing this extra bone growth. And so the the team apparently the team uh, uh, mostly from UCL University College yeah. London, um, and they are planning on extending the research further afield, just to see uh, how well if was you know was it localized practice back then or, or was it more widespread? Yeah, I mean hats off would take a pretty canny archaeologist um, to just notice inverted commas that uh, a foot bone was um, skewed in that seriously way seriously impressive uh, well absolutely it? seriously yeah. impressive and it's a bit of serendipity that somebody with um, that kind of nouse was there to uh, to notice yeah. and probably spark off uh, <clears throat> another interesting extrapolation <laughs> from <laughs> <laughs> cows <laughs> Yeah, it, it it is. I, I just you know, I love it. I absolutely love it when you get somebody in a team of archaeologists who you know they're they're doing one thing, but somebody it's one of you know the greatest moments in science. You know when somebody says, "Well, that's funny." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I look forward to uh, results of um, uh, cattle bones being examined in that light in uh, in the UK. Yes, yes. I wonder where they'll find the oldest. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Any money on Orkney? Ooh, ooh! <laughs> There's a thought. Oh, blimey! Yes, it opened a hole. Yes, like that. Onward. <laughs> Can open worms everywhere. <laughs> Can worms open. So on to the news then. 
What do you have to start us off this month, Michael? Well, this is different. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Come on, well, this is different. Oh, uh, yes, this is different. Very different. And at a time like this, I, I wish it wasn't a podcast and we could run the uh, outtakes from uh, <laughs> from Standing with Stones yeah. so uh, nobody's in the dark about why we're giggling our silly little socks off about when we, every time we say, well, this is different. Oh, come on, adults, back in the room. Back in the room. Back in the room. This is, this news item is 10,000-year-old Birch bark tar from Scandinavia. I'll say that again. Birch bark tar. Birch bark tar. Birch bark tar. Go on. Yes. Look, it's the sort of stuff they would use to fix arrowheads to arrows, kind of like a an e- a, a prehistoric epoxy resin. Um, Araldite, if you're listening, oh, we're open to okay. uh, sponsorship. Um, but no, it's <laughs> so. Yeah, this is yet another situation where research just took off in a flow of different directions. These right. pieces of tar—they're all found at a site called Husbyklöv. I think that's fairly close. Apologies to Swedish friends if that was a rubbish pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, but that's alternative, what I'm going with. alternative pronunciations are available. <laughs> H-U-S-E-B-Y, new word. K-L-E-V, in Western Sweden. Right. Now, the thing is, it's a bit of a mystery how they made the tar because it requires high temperatures and very low oxygen, which requires techniques which we only know of from much more recent human activity. Okay. So how old was this again? Uh, what did I say? 10,000 uh, 10, year. 10,000, oh, wow, so 8,000 okay. BC or thereabouts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, we know that they chewed this stuff, although there, there doesn't seem to be any consensus among academics as to why they did it. It seems perfectly reasonable to me that if you're making it into a softer consistency for moulding purposes, chewing it would probably make it uh, warmer. It would it warm it and it would make yeah. it softer. Yeah, seems perfectly reasonable. So what, well, why is there an argument about that? It seems sensible. Well, because all the pieces of birch bark tar that have been found so far have teeth marks in them. And some people think it may have been used like chewing gum. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, why not? <laughs> why not? I mean, it doesn't sound like it would taste very good. No, it doesn't, does it? <laughs> you know, okay. as a lifestyle choice, it doesn't seem like uh, quite the thing. I mean, who yeah. knows? It may be the best thing since... Um, Bazooka bubblegum. I don't know. Maybe it's a prehistoric kind of toothbrush, really, if you see what I mean. I don't know. Anyway, um, well, go on. That's just, it's, it well, is any, intriguing. Anyway, anyway, some bright sparks noticed that the teeth marks were very varied, you know, baby teeth as well as adults. Right. So they inferred that the whole family was using the stuff. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, maybe it was because they were all involved in, in tool making. Who knows? That is interesting. So you can read that kind of both ways, can't yeah, you? As yeah, a pleasure yeah. or, as a, or as a pain. <laughs> necessarily pain. Yeah. That is interesting. <laughs> but anyway, they, they, but then they made the leap. It might be possible to extract the chewer's DNA from the tar. And Get they off. did. Yes. <laughs> using a technique, get this, usually employed when extracting DNA from feces. <laughs> the way you do. Yes. <laughs> And look, oh my goodness. I mean, we'll, we'll put the links on the website because it's far too lengthy to talk about it all here. But they established that one of these chewers 
was a dark-skinned, blue-eyed woman, just like the recent findings from the DNA of Cheddar Man. Oh, now that's interesting. That is yeah. interesting. And this is from Sweden. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mind you, if this is... Cheddar Man is uh, 10,000 BC, isn't he? And this is 8,000 uh, BC. If we're, I mean, is he 10,000 BC? He's a hell of a long way back, yes. And maybe it's um, 10,000 years ago. I must check up on that. But nevertheless, similar peoples we're talking about here. Um, I mean, dark-skinned with blue eyes is... Um, oh, no, no, sorry. I've just double-checked. It's the same time. Oh, there you go. Okay, interesting, right? Just as a sideline, we have to remember there was still uh, a land uh, link between... Yes. Um, between Europe and, and Britain at that time. Yes, yes. Up to 10,000 years ago. Anyway, they, they also found that the chewing had left traces of non-human and microbial DNA. <laughs> okay. So a, so a couple of species of the microbe were associated with hunter-gatherer peoples who consumed far less carbohydrate before farming got underway. Right. And they also found DNA of duck and eel, <laughs> which apart okay. from wow. telling you something about the diet, reassure, reassuringly confirms the accuracy of the testing because they ex excavated duck bones and eel fishing implements from the site as well. So it all ties oh, up. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Now, come on, that is astonishing. And that's all that from a few lumps of black tar. <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? And every time we sort of come up with something new, uh, you know, the, the whole thing... So much that we talk about is infused by new science, DNA, yeah. isotopes, and all that, which, um, in case you hadn't listened to it, we uh, we talked about the science of archaeology a, a few podcasts back. We did indeed. I don't indeed, which number yeah. it was, but if you want to uh, check up on that, have a look back through the catalogue. <laughs> yeah. That, that that really actually is, is quite an exciting uh, little combination of things. You know, particularly yeah. the fact that they could extract microbial DNA as I well. I don't know. What's, I mean, what's, what's, your technology? what's your choice, though? Is it chewing gum or uh, arrow, uh, arrow production line? I'd say arrow production line. <laughs> See all the family lined up on the production line. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I Passing think if you're... Passing bits of tar along. It, it, because, let's face it, it you know, pre-farming, then you'd, you'd probably lose quite a lot of arrows in the course of a, you know, a hunting yeah. foray, wouldn't you? So, so to have uh, the whole family involved in, um, you know, helping uh, keep your stocks up, that seems reasonable. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want somebody to tell me how this stuff tastes. That would probably nail it. Well, let's be honest. I don't or know if, if it's you're addictive. Chewer, but, That's the um, other possibility, I... of course. Birch bark tar might be addictive. Well, now, there's a whole different... Uh way of looking at it. Okay. See, I well, just think chewing gum tastes disgusting. So the fact that somebody would be chewing something that tastes unpleasant, yeah. so, see, well, uh, what's the difference? Yeah. So could somebody research this and get back to us, please? <laughs> yes, answers on a postcard, and don't, uh, And don't come back to us if your teeth fall out. It's not our <laughs> fault. It's your choice. Yeah, <laughs> who'd have thought? Well, well, look, I'm moving on. I'm I'm coming on uh, a lot more recent, actually. This is new findings on the Falkton drums. Oh, I like the Falkton drums. Mm. Um, I do, you know, they're just aesthetically pleasing, aren't they? They, yeah, they, so, they certainly are. Uh, and yet yeah, incredibly enigmatic to look at, because you can't, just by looking at them, you just cannot figure out, you know, what possible purpose they could have. No. Um, 
But anyway, anyway, you should probably tell people what they are. Um, um, so I'm not sure that they're widely talked about that much. Do you know what? They're not, are they? They're no. not. Um, and uh, okay, so if you don't know, the Fulton drums are three small drum shaped, or to be honest, you could even say pork pie shaped. I think they look more like pork pies than drums. It might well, be because I have a penchant for pork pies, but there we go. Yes, um, that is well known. But- <laughs> The but they ascend in size in a similar way to Russian dolls. I mean, it's, yeah. they're solid. They don't fit inside right. each other, no, but no. that's just the way the sizes go. And the diameter of these little pie-shaped things, uh, the diameter has a proportionate ratio with the height. And the largest is 146 millimetres uh, in diameter, so it's just under six inches. Oh, you're kidding me. And Do you know what? Yeah, they're the, tiny. Yeah, because none of the photographs I've seen of them uh, have any context at all. No, I you get of, the impression I, that they're quite big, don't you? You do, yeah. That's yeah, when, when I first saw them, I uh, my head immediately made a connection to like a poof yeah. on a footstool yeah, yeah. thing. I thought that was the sort of size they were. So I was quite shocked to find out that actually, no, they are about the size of an average pork pie. That's right. Um, That's exactly the feel they have to to look at. They look like a a, a little little poof. But uh, but this is, uh, it's quite extraordinary what has been found out. And that's, uh, bearing in mind, they're made from chalk Mm. um, and uh, they're rather beautifully engraved with motifs quite similar to those found in a variety of Neolithic sites. And, and they fact, are dated some of to the, the Neolithic, uh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and interestingly, uh, I remember some of the engravings that we saw at Nauth uh, seem to be uh, repeated in these drums. Anyway, uh, they're named after the village where they were found in Yorkshire, and there is one other example known that was found in Lavant in Sussex, uh, although the, the Lavant example is not engraved, it's plain. Is it, have they just got one, one drum, is it, from Lavant? Yeah, Lavant is just one. Yeah. Uh, in Fulton, it's three. But they actually, if you put them together, they make uh, a... It's a continuous, a progression of sizes. Mm, so yeah. the uh, so the Levant one actually filled in a, a gap, if you like. Um, and it's it's funny you see the Fulton set have been in the British Museum since they were found back in the nineteenth century. Nobody ever knew what uh, what the hell they were for. And um, the <laughs> researchers is uh, UCL again. Actually, the guys at UCL have been busy, and uh, uh, and and uh, some people from the University of Manchester, and they've recently discovered that the circumference of the drums relates to a standard unit of measure of three point two two meters that is found in many Neolithic sites. We know that many sites were constructed with this 3.22 metres as a, as a unit of measure. And the, the way it connects is that if you take a length of cord, so take this standard measure, 3.22 metres, and you wrap it around the drums, then you can wrap it exactly 10 times around the smallest drum 
uh, nine times around the next one, eight times around the next one. And it's all, it's absolutely precise and all with this 3.22 meter length, which is just wow. And, and so it, it, the implication, of course, is that there might be uh, the, the way we have brass weights. Mm. Uh, you know, for scales, you know, that, that that maybe there are a whole range of sizes that we just haven't found the examples of. Maybe they were made from wood or, you know, don't know. Maybe they've just perished away. But um, but the implication is that uh, there were a whole range of sizes. For the purposes of, of establishing a measurement of length. Yes. Hmm. And, and, that, and that is the claim, is it? Well, yes, there's uh, there's no denying that the 3.22 meter, there's no denying that the 3.22 meter length yeah. relates directly to these different sizes of drum. It's very precise the number of times you can wrap it around. Uh-huh. So they clearly relate. Mm. Um, well, that's what they're saying. Uh, I, yes, okay. I, I might. Well, uh, do you know what? I, I did wonder if you look at the drums. Um, have you seen? I hope I'm not going off on one here, but no. you can buy you can buy these little art and craft kits for children, where you get a, a it's like a fat wheel that has got patterns on it, and you can ink the the wheel like a little rubber stamp, mm. and roll it along, mm. and you draw the the length of pattern. And if you look at the Fulton drums, yeah. at the pattern on them. And it did make me wonder that if you're making, if you if you're using a standard unit of measure to say the length of a wall, yeah. So you've made a, a wall that is four units long. Okay, so what what does that make it like fourteen meters or something like that? Um, but then you took one of these drums and you started at one end. Uh, you know whether it <laughs> whether it was inked or whether it was just into a soft mud surface or yeah. something but if you rolled that along then you know that you're going to get an, an exact measurement of pattern mm, from yeah. one end to the other now that probably is going completely off well it makes sense of the Fulton, just what, Fulton drums but not of the Levant's, Levant um, well it's also possible that the Levant one was just not, not finished, finished yeah. we don't know <laughs> but hmm, on the measurement thing um, yes. I, I'm, I'm confused because yeah. uh, that measurement doesn't seem to relate mm. to uh, Professor Tom's megalithic yard at all. No, no, I can't see any connection with it. So how? So, uh, so I don't know if there's. Well, so I'm not quite sure what this establishment of the 3.22 meters uh, relationship to the construction of um, megalithic monuments comes from. Um, no, maybe that's a, a little study that we should do and. Um, and come back on, but uh, apparently, yeah, I've never heard that before. What about the I mean, three two two? Obviously, I've heard it about. Yeah, I've never heard that mm. one before. Um, obviously, I heard it about uh, the megalithic yard, mm. um, but that doesn't help us at all. Does no, it, it doesn't yeah. relate to Tom's megalithic yard in any way, unless there are any mathematicians out there. Because um, how how big was Tom's megalithic yard? It was point eight of a meter, something like that. Oh, don't test me. I should know. I know. I should know too. I, I don't actually remember off the top of my head. But um, but no, uh, unless there's any mathematicians who could extrapolate <laughs> where that connection might be, I don't know. But um, d- d- having said all that, d- d- may I just put my grouchy hat on? 
Oh, do please. It wouldn't be a proper podcast without you putting your grouchy hat on. Sorry. I'm sorry. But here we go. First podcast of the year. Yeah. Yeah. No, you'll see what I mean. You see, the original set, the Falkton drums, were found in a child's grave. Okay. And despite the fact that the Levant example had nothing to do with the burial of any child, and no others have been found. So they've found some in a child's grave and some not in a child's grave, and that's it. Well, some people, Mike Parker Pearson included, still think that they could be associated with children. Now, forgive me, but these artefacts have been found in two locations, one related to a child's burial and the other not. So for me, creating an association from that is just going off on one. It's as tenuous as imagining. <laughs> the, uh, you know, imagine that we had never seen a chariot before and then we open Tutankhamun's <laughs> tomb and uh, and find the chariots inside and now we think that chariots must be related to teenagers. It's, you know, it's just, it's stupid. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely take your point and I think that's a perfectly reasonable use of the uh, grouchy hat. And... If I may, could I could I borrow your grouchy oh, please. for a moment? Oh, please. Mm. Here's a first. First podcast of the year. And We're both yes, wearing a grouchy hat. Here's Michael Bott um, um, crowns himself <laughs> with the grouchy hat for a moment. And going back, you see, you may have heard in my voice a little bit of scepticism creeping mm. in with the mention of this like 3.22 metres. Yeah. Because if we're talking about precision, yeah. and we need to be precise yeah. if we're talking about measurement and making these sorts of claims, then if you look at the Falkton drums, mm. then you'll see, particularly on the larger one, that it is not straight-sided. No, it is curved. Slightly curved, It yeah. is curved. Mm. How the heck can you get a precise measurement by wrapping something round that? I think it's because they're so small. No, don't buy it. People are sort of reverse engineering it, you know? They're looking at it as a nice idea. If you, on the other hand, were making something to give you a precise m measurement, you wouldn't make it curved-sided. you make it... Uh, you'd make it cylindrical. You'd make it straight-sided. Properly mm -hmm. cylindrical. I, I am you following your thinking. Yes. Well, that's my thinking. Right. That's my grouchy-hattedness on this um, on this piece of um, mm. news, inverted commas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, obviously, we'll put the links so um, you can make your own mind Indeed. about this. Indeed. I, I think there's probably another way of uh, of looking at these all together and and actually it'll be interesting to know what uh, uh, what uh, all our, our listeners think about this because uh, you're you're looking at really you're looking at the relationship of well not necessarily pi but you're certainly looking at the geometry of a circle and uh, so maybe the 3.22 meter length and the drums, well, maybe they relate to each other in a, a, a way that we're just not noticing at the moment. It might be something utterly mundane, uh, just a yes, standard I, unit I, measure. That I hear what I, I hear what you say, and proportion. The fact that there is a proportionality is a very interesting thing here. Mm. While you were talking about that, I was thinking, well, well, maybe they're just weights. If they have a proportionality to each other. Has anybody weighed them to see see what the proportionality of weight one to other is? Ah, uh -huh. mm. 
Nobody's mentioned weighing. It's a thought. Yes, it is a thought. It's a thought. It is a thought. I'm skept- So I'm just, um, you know, just putting my marker on that, that um, mm. I- I'm sceptical about the measurement thing. Lovely. We like sceptic. Yeah. So grouchy hat <laughs> off on to the next bit of news. And it is, there is a new exhibition open till May the 26th at the Roma und oh. Palisius <laughs> Pelise- Roma, Roma und Pelizaeus Museum in Hildesheim, Germany. Yes. Entitled, mm-hmm. if you'll forgive the translation, Mistakes and Fakes in Archaeology. <laughs> and the uh, the exhibition includes all sorts of ridiculous fakes, like the narwhal's tusks stuck on various other bones, which the faker claimed was a unicorn. <laughs> but the item that really stands out for me is a sort of error which illustrates just how important it is for us to stick with facts. Yes. This is actually an Iron Age artifact, but the point it makes is timeless. Back in 1838, a German collector dug up what appeared to be a crown, a ring of engraved triangles pointing upwards, as as you would imagine any crown would do, uh, with a riveted metal band curving over the top, rather like the shape of the elastic in a modern head torch. Yeah, okay. The crown (laughs) was proudly displayed for 150 years until recently... Someone found another absolutely identical, except that this one was complete. The triangles didn't point upwards, they pointed downwards, and it was still attached to the rest of the artifact, which was made of wood. (laughs) Go on. The The impressive royal crown... The impressive royal crown was actually the top ring of a wooden bucket. <laughs> and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the riveted crest was simply the handle. Uh, I mean, it's, it's quite a, f- a fancy bucket, you know, fair to who's, but it was a bucket nonetheless. Yeah. Let that be a lesson to us all. Yeah. We can't possibly top that. Perhaps we should just end the podcast here. Uh, Right, let's do that. (laughs) So, after all that full disclosure here, it is actually uh, two weeks since um, we made the previous recording. Um, (laughs) It is true. Yeah, we've been two weeks. um, We were so dissatisfied. We were so... Uh, amazed, I think, at um, how much there is to discover, how much there is to um, try and pull together about Beaker culture, that it became, in my mind at least, Rupert, a, a sort of complete reversal of when we were talking about archaeoastronomy, where we started off thinking, oh, we know nothing about this uh, th- this thing, then amazed ourselves at what came out of our mouths. Yeah. Uh, the reverse is true here, thinking, well, there must be some kind of synthesis we can access, some kind of, you know, overview that we can regurgitate and started off thinking, oh, well, this is going well and just completely ran up against our own ignorance. And I'm yes. not so and sure you- that even having given the two weeks uh, <laughs> between now and uh, then that we're any the wiser really. no but i think actually this is one of those exciting things where you you realize or what we found anyway was that actually there's not that much that is known there's all sorts of little tantalizing bits and pieces of information and uh, and 
new technology again, some of the genetic information that's been coming out. But in actual fact, we don't know how these pieces of jigsaw fit together at all. So... So well, that was the can two I just of us. correct, slightly yes. correct something you just said? Yeah. Actually, an awful lot is known. It's just that it's not been put together into a cohesive um, history. That's the astonishing yes, thing that but, we're finding. But, but what, I, what I mean by so yeah. little is known is that yeah. it's all circumstantial. We've got this massive change when we went into, uh, or when the Beaker, Bell Beaker Complex, uh, took over, if you like, but mm. what what we can see is that this massive change occurred, but we don't know which bits actually related to uh, the Bellbeaker mm. complex. We just knew that there was this massive change at that period, but but did it relate to the people or not? Uh, it's one of the biggest arguments that's been going on amongst academics yeah. for years, isn't it? Is that is was it the culture that changed the people, or was it the people that changed the culture? Um, and pots or people, pots or people, indeed, that's what they call it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's wow. So, I mean, we've launched um, into talking about bee culture as if everybody was up to date with what uh, we knew. No, <laughs> and of course, <laughs> it's uh, I, I, I think it's so shocking to me. Um, that there is such a change right here. Well, I'll have to con- confess that you know, since we started doing Standing with Stones, uh, that I had it that you know the, the, the Neolithic sort of blended into the Bronze Age. There was a sort of uh, a, a grey area where things gradually changed. Not a bit of it. Mm. It this is something spectacular. The change between um, the, the the changeover from the end of the uh, Neolithic and the megalith building into the Bronze Age, mm. something uh, radical happened, and that's what we're trying to talk about. Mm. So uh, let's nail worth... down the date we're talking about here, shall we? Well, uh... I I have it that we're we're talking about a, a hundred or a couple of hundred years around about. Mm, what uh, two thousand five hundred BCE? Yeah, yes. Um, but the uh, the actual transition or the the whole Bell Beaker period only lasted yeah. about five hundred years. Yeah, in total. Yeah, uh, and the Bell Beaker period called because <laughs> because of the bell shape of the beakers that uh, were introduced into the culture at that time. Uh, yes. Which appeared or, in or the in, the, the beaker beaker like um, pots that uh, yes. tended to be buried uh, buried with folk at the time. Yes, I must admit that I find uh, I find the very description quite curious in itself because it's not like we didn't have pots for ever. It's just that they started okay. They are a, a more of a distinctive yeah. shape, but it's just that they started appearing in burials. At that time, didn't they? Which we, which is really what distinguished it from uh, what had gone before, more than the fact that suddenly we were using beakers. They were only so named uh, beakers because one particular person, I can't remember his name, 
uh, adopted the, I think it was a German actually, it was a German term, uh, which I can't uh, remember exactly. And it stuck yeah. um, as being like a beaker. Yes, like um, so many things in archaeology, uh, one person uh, said it. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it, yes. uh, it becomes the handle that everything gets hung on. Yeah. Um, so that's the, you know, the large association. But of mm. course, um, together with that, culture comes a lo- whole load of other differentiating um, uh, artifacts that uh, distinguish um, uh, Bell Beaker culture from what had gone before. Mm. Yes, I mean, most notably burials. Where... Well, singular burial, burials, um, including um, artifacts to do with hunting and or um, warrior status. For example, uh, arrowheads, uh, blades and things of that like, which had been absent from burials before that. Mm. Which, uh, which is curious because there's there's no evidence really to suggest that this complete change of culture had any aggression attached to it. There's no signs of yeah. like an invading warmongering force uh, changing everything that happened across Europe and Britain, and yet. As you say, that uh, suddenly, you know, I mean, take our, our most famous uh, burial in Britain, the Amesbury Archer, found near mm. Stonehenge, who we know was a beaker person from the Alps-ish. Yep. Um, and his burial was um, was full of, you know, archery equipment and uh, copper knives, that sort of stuff. So, you know, as you oh, say... Oh, and uh, artefacts to do with metallurgy as well. Yes. Yes, 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 there's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Other pronunciations are available. Um, um, yeah, and it's, uh, it's thought that he was a metallurgist. Metallurgist, <laughs> a metallurgist I would say. Yeah, you could, yeah. You could say whatever you like. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, which, uh, which might explain why his burial was so lavish because he had so much in there didn't he yeah, uh, yeah. not on the well i think to date it is the most uh, lavish uh, beaker burial in the british isles uh um, yes i believe that's i, believe uh, I that's don't know true. if it's um uh, surpassed on the continent um i think it probably is somewhere but i couldn't name where that would be um but uh, i think uh, although there are many, many uh, beaker burials in uh, the British Isles, um, mm. yeah, the Amesbury Archer still remains uh, the most uh, elaborate. And, and it's it's interesting, isn't it? It's one of those things that uh, that we can't say because the information is you know it's it's insufficient. But you know, was it the beaker people who brought bronze metalworking into Britain? Uh, maybe uh, it's possible, but we don't know. Um, on balance, it seems a fair uh, association. It does. Uh, th- there is a, a radical change around this time. Mm. And the other thing is, I think it's fair to say that we wouldn't be talking about this now had it not been for the study that I think was released um, um, in uh, February 2018 about the genetics of this uh, whole business. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and how that's thrown a little bit of a grenade into uh, the way archaeologists, uh, uh, into the way we, we think about the distribution of the beaker culture around about this time. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's the a, argument. An, go on. Sorry, Rick. No, I was just going to say it's, um, a, a, and it's another illustration of just what is going to happen in the next few years where all this new biochemical uh, technology is completely changing uh, the information that, that we have. And it's changing stuff that was, if you like, artistic interpretation into yeah. absolute measurable solid fact. And so it's turning a lot of our um, previous ideas on their heads. Um, yeah. And in a nutshell, what seems to be the takeaway, the big takeaway from that study, is that um, within uh, continental Europe, that the beaker culture did spread by uh, dissemination, by uh, spread of a culture from region to region without necessarily there being a, a vast movement of people. Mm. Um, it, is, it is generally taken that um, the earliest beaker culture remains. Um, artifacts are found in uh, northern Portugal, is that right? Yes, it is. Yeah. So, so the spread is from Iberia, uh, of the culture itself is from Iberia, gen speaking generally, into uh, Central and Northern Europe. Yeah, uh, and the, the, the earliest uh, the earliest date they have in Portugal is two thousand seven fifty BC. Right. Okay. So you know we're talking fairly short, relatively fairly short time spans yeah, yeah but but so that's happy news for the disseminationists <laughs> <laughs> but but the the huge thing is that is that uh, the expansion of beaker culture into the british isles is a different matter entirely that is that has been carried by people so yeah, the, 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 this, this study suggests that within a few hundred years of this migration, only 10% of the gene pool of the British population came from the earlier, the, the, the Neolithic uh, farmers. The ramifications of that, I mean, how, how can you, uh, how, how can we mm. step back from that and say what could have caused yeah. Yeah. that, you know, in a few hundred years to have changed the entire genetic weight of the population uh, by 90%, if that's the right way of putting it. But what, what are we talking about? Did these incoming people, uh, maybe they brought diseases yeah, with them, as, yeah. you know, as well, you know, white men has done across the globe so many times, uh, that you take diseases that people can't cope with and so you replace the population. A, a similar genetic thing happened in... Uh, um, in Central America, I think it was. Uh, and maybe, maybe the late Neolithic farming methods were failing. Uh, maybe the, maybe, maybe the, the, the late Neolithic population was already in decline. Yes, but would it be, to have that scale of replacement, though, is enormous, isn't it? That Oh, oh it's, it is. But, you might you know, have to uh, adopt a, a new way of life, but, would, you know, what is the, the implication that they just died of starvation no not necessarily um well no that's that, but that's my point it's it, yeah. it, that would that wouldn't be uh an explanation because you know if your farming wasn't working you'd just go and kill more animals um yeah 
uh, so you're not going to starve to death, but it's the fact that the whole of the genetic, not the whole of, but 90% of the uh, uh, the population yeah. is genetically new, if you like. Yeah. I mean, we could have a long, long conversation about, you know, what the, <laughs> the possibilities mm. behind that are, but I think don't think that would be a Well, it would only be supposition, so no. Exactly, yeah. Um, but you know, th those are the facts of the matter. Mm. But wonderful thing, wonderful thing, I'm not sure that's uh, <laughs> the right word to use, but um, the uh, pertinent thing is that we're talking just after the completion of Stonehenge. Yeah, just after the um, uh, the 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 Sarsons had gone mm. up, was mm. was Stonehenge a last hooray from a uh, an already failing culture? And it's very interesting, of course, that uh, the very burials that speak to this very thing of migration from a foreign land, the Amesbury Archer and the Boscombe Bowman. Um, you know, within a couple of found within a couple of miles of uh, of the, the Stonehenge Monument yes. and Durrington Walls. Yes, yes. What's that about? Yeah. Well, it's it's intriguing, isn't it? That that here here you have this period where the massive scale building ceased at the same time yeah. as uh, as this cultural shift was uh, was taking place. So. It's, it's impossible to, you know, you can write so many different storylines <laughs> to explain it. And, yeah. and so it's such a tantalising mystery. But, um, uh, you know, it, I suppose it would make sense if, uh, you know, if some bright spark, wherever they were, uh, that, you know, somebody discovers that if you mix tin with bronze, uh, with copper, that, uh, that, you know, bronze is suddenly a metal that is, Infinitely more usable than uh, uh, than anything that had gone before. Um, so you can you can see how that would open up all sorts of cultural possibilities. Yeah. But uh, you know, there I mean, there are some academics who, for example, uh, they've interpreted that the use of bronze giving people uh, much more, well, let's say, lethal weapons that actually people then started to spend an awful lot more time in trying to make weapons to protect themselves from these uh, people that were then trying to come in and steal their land. It, mm. it doesn't fully add up to me. I mean, it, okay, it does make sense, but but it, it seems unlikely to me. But the point is that you, those, you can paint pictures at both extremes. Um, mm. Certainly a 10% remaining uh of of the indigenous dna that's one of the reasons why they think that uh that aggression might have been uh, uh an aspect of this but there isn't any evidence for it all we have all we have is the replacement of one uh, population by another not only that of course we're not talking just talking about artifacts we're talking about uh, beliefs and it is another aspect to really make sure that we will understand. There must, there must be accompanying this a fundamental change in, for want of a better word, um, the religious basis of how uh, life was lived. Because up until this point, although, again, it had been dying out to a certain extent, 
Um, you do tend to have communal burials at the, in <clears throat> Neolithic and late uh, Neolithic. Um, not only that, but relatively few grave goods. Mm. And now with these incomers, uh, you have individual burials, not exclusively so, but for the most part, you have uh, individual burials mm. um, strongly associated um, with uh, with artifacts of one sort or another, in particular, obviously the, the beaker after artifacts, the pots, um, uh, and the weapons. There is actually, to be fair, uh, an emphasis on archery. Yes, it seems. Yes, um, with, with with beaker burials, um, such things as the all oh, the other bits, the wrist guards, they they tend to pop up uh, quite commonly as well in in beaker burials. In, the, indeed, they the do. Stone in, wrist guards. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I know. It's, it's, that's something that I actually find quite intriguing. That there is a lot of stone wrist guards. When uh, uh, I'd always had it in my head that it was far more uh, common to have a leather wrist guard. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the Ainsbury Archer had a black um, stone wrist guard and yes. a, a red sort of ready ochre, which is one, which is quite, quite swanky. As well. yeah. yeah, yeah. See, culturally, you, you know, it, it does make you wonder if. Prior to this, so when you had the communal uh, burials with very little in the way of grave goods uh, previously, mm. that you know, maybe uh, in hunter-gatherer groups or, uh, or or even in uh, smaller-scale farming communities, that uh, there was no emphasis on individuals. It was about uh, a family or a tribal group being together of equal yeah, importance. Not only that, Rupert, but there's a, the, a huge investment made in it as well, because the construction of a, a long barrow yes. was a big undertaking, a big yes. communal undertaking. Make Where, no mistake. So built, uh, you know, built collectively, people interred uh, with no... Uh, well, certainly no apparent hierarchical aspect. You you would yeah. often get uh, you know yeah. males one side, females the other side, or children on one side. That's that kind of thing. Mm. But there didn't seem to be the hierarchical aspect that maybe when you get into Beaker and you've got uh, the individual burials with grave goods, it's much more along the uh, you know the way we'd associate uh, uh, it, the, the you know the Pharaohic uh, burials in Egypt, you know, that uh, look at Tutankhamun's burial goods and that sort of stuff. That you've got a chief or a king or a, yeah. you know, or whatever who well, is now much more important to be buried uh, on his own yeah. than with a group. We've just lost the scale of the population. They've disappeared in terms of burials. Um, artifacts aside, the actual burials themselves are quite modest. Very often, mm. you know, at most you'll get a, a tumulus, you know, a mound of some sort to mark where the where the grave is. Sometimes not, and we're talking but about we don't modest know. wooden enclosure, wooden, you know, not uh, coffins as such, but sometimes yes. modest uh, wooden enclosures to enclose the the actual bury itself, and no more than a, a an earthen mound, if that. Sometimes yes, but but again, something that we've noted in other contexts many many times is that you know when when you're talking uh, talking about a uh, a megalithic site, for example, that we don't have the perishables. We only have the stones. So yeah. we don't actually know what it looked like. And I do wonder if that's the same uh, with any of the burial mounds that, well, how were they adorned? You know, do, were, there, uh, were there 
fancier aspects to the cans that are I, you know long since I, gone. I, I know. No I mean, I know of no evidence for uh, a, a, anything beyond the internal wooden uh, structures. So yes, but if, they, if it I, was I, no, I take your point. Though. I take your point. If it was wooden, fanciful stuff, uh, mm. not fanciful. If, if it was wooden, fancy stuff on the outside, then that would be long perished and yeah. gone. So, um, but, but it's just a that movie. Uh, notwithstanding, I think we're looking at a, um, a vastly different attitude towards the whole thing of yes. of, of burial yeah. of of people and this concentration on reverence of the individual. The yeah. interesting thing is, it just struck my mind, uh, actually, talking about the Amesbury Archer. It seems a bleeding obvious thing to say, but he didn't bury himself. <laughs> well, it, it's weird because yeah, it, no, it's, it's so easy to take, you know, this individual as, as a one-off. But, of course, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> he would have been mm -hmm. part of at least a modestly, yeah. uh, you know, group of people who had carried with them uh, the cultural beliefs and what have you, uh, it, that were necessary to inter him in that way. So sometimes, yes. because there's only one bloke, <laughs> we just tend to think about the one man and forget that, of course, somebody did actually bury him. Uh, yes. You know, the family was there, or somebody, you know, yes. to do with the family. Talking of which, he was not alone in, in the burial. Uh, it, I think, uh, I don't know how many years later, there was another burial associated with him, just a few yes. yards a uh, away. Um, a, yeah. a youngster called the companion, inverted commas, Mm. Uh, for want of better words. Now, although we know that the Amesbury Archer himself um, came from the Alpine regions of Central Europe, thanks to yes. uh, isotope analysis, the companion was actually born um, or spent early years uh, on the Chalk Downs, but then made a journey into yes. Central Europe and then must have obviously came, came back speaks to me yes. of a kind of he went away to do an apprenticeship or something uh, like absolutely, that. Absolutely, absolutely. That is uh, uh, either that or it was his dad couldn't cope with him, so he was sent <laughs> to live with his grandparents. <laughs> In the Rhine Valley somewhere. But, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, and then he came back when he was, I can't remember offhand, can you, how old was he oh, when he died? He was very young, 20s, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's... Uh, that's a oh, that's a lovely story to be told in there somewhere, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. No. And that's um, what I was trying to say. That, that by and large, there is so much granular detail that we know from Europe and from uh, the British Isles about these uh, people. There seems to be so much more detail, and this is part of the thing that has blown my mind. There seems to be so much more absolute detail available about this period than just before, than, you know, just ducking back into the late Neolithic and the Neolithic. There seems to be, it may be just my, it may be my ignorance here, but having looked at it, there seems to be a lot more granular information, much, a lot more detail that is disparate, yeah, I, I, so, but but it's very hard to pull together into a cohesive cohesive story. So much so that, dear listener, if you go and and do a, a Google search about beaker culture, you will turn up an awful lot of contradictory nonsense. Yes, 
um, yes. about about this period and, and and where it belongs in relationship to the building of Stonehenge, building of Avebury, and uh, all the all the stuff you know that we we tend to other t- stuff that we tend to concentrate on. It really highlights the fact that um, partly because there are more um, manufactured items um, uh, that are being uncovered, which um, you know, because previously we might have had stone artifacts, but uh, but you know, metal wasn't being used. So what have you got? They're, they're using wood for everything else. Well, that's long gone. And suddenly, uh, you had uh, pottery in a way that had uh, you know, on a on a scale that had never been uh, hmm. there before, which <clears throat> might also be to do with the scale of the population. Yeah. And then as soon as you've got metal, something that you can use in so many different ways, whether it's jewellery or axes or, you know, or oh. knives, whatever, that there is so much more stuff being found and it's just a confusion of what relates to what. You know, you can, for example, you know, if, if suddenly, you know, imagine us culturally uh, – now, if people were digging us up and you found that um, – <laughs> I'm going to struggle to come up with a good example. <laughs> but I was going to say, you know, knives. I mean, take anything like a knife. All right, I know we've been using knives since way back when. But but the thing is that you, if you had a cultural shift, then you couldn't, uh, you couldn't apply the use of knives to that cultural no. shift yeah. because that's always been in use. And that's it's that kind of thing that is becoming such a confusion here because we find suddenly there's all these things that are being used, but that might just simply be to do with the fact that well now people are using metal more. No, 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 no. I've just sort of answered my own question. It's a kind of well, well duh. Well, the, the, duh. The, the, yeah, I mean, but it's the very fact that these things have been being buried, that these are grave goods. Before there weren't so many grave goods. People weren't burying artifacts to do with uh, the individual uh, alongside the individual. As we said, there were communal uh, burials that were all about the ancestor, well, uh, not about what he carried into the grave uh, grave with him. That, but now, with the cult- with this culture, we've got an explosion of grave grave goods. So of course, there's a lot of a heck of a lot of granular detail about. Uh, um, what a man or a woman might have owned in their lifetime. But isn't it curious that uh, if you uh, if you you know take this period generally and take say uh, bronze axes, right? Well, yeah. um, they appear in uh, in burials, but. Well, there must have been gazillions of them in use all the time. Yeah. Why aren't oh. them? Yeah. What I mean is that just because uh, we're finding stuff in burials, you would think that there'd be an awful lot more stuff just tipping up, uh, it, whether it's in ploughed fields, uh, which, you know, we don't turn up as much stuff as you'd expect. Just a thought. I think we need to understand a little bit more about archaeology itself, the nuts and bolts of it, to be really to go down that route and answer that question as, yes. as to the whys and, and wherefores. Yes, there's another interview yeah. to be done there. But circling back a little bit to the very uh, beginning, and I'm conscious that you know that what we're doing, we're giving a very top layer observation 
of what we know. And what <laughs> Rupert and I know, I dare to speak for him, is, yeah. is, is very little. There is a lot to know, but it's, it's so disparate um, that it is really hard to pull together into a cohesive picture that um, really completely and utterly makes sense. There is no consensus, as far as I can make out, yet about this very process whereby the people of the British Isles were replaced mm. uh, by incomers. Oh, one thing we haven't mentioned, and that there would have been a noticeable genetic um, uh, difference. There would have been a note, the, the, these people would have looked different. They would have had paler skin, perhaps lighter eyes, perhaps uh, light, lighter hair than the indigenous population. Yeah. So there's just, just one more little aspect of it too. Uh, they would have been distinctive. Yeah. They would have been distinct from the original population. Yeah. Maybe the guys were just so damn good looking that all the women just went for them. That, uh, yes. I think that... <laughs> Oh, uh, dear. Poor old Neolithic man didn't stand a chance. <laughs> you never know. Oh, we joke, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, that said, uh, interestingly, uh, the Akavenic, um, um Beaker burial up in Scotland, um, there's a recreation. Uh, she was a female burial um, called, um, for want of finding a better name, called Ava. And if you look on the internet... Uh, the uh, Akavenic uh, Beaker Burial, you'll find um, uh, a nice web page about uh, Ava, whose face uh, has been reconstructed just recently. Mm. Uh, uh, an in-depth gen genetic study was done. And in fact, she was black-haired with brown eyes. Yeah, amazing. So it's not a, you know, a, 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 an across-the-board uh, genetic uh, difference. <laughs> Apparently. Anyway... The other aspect is, of course, this um, that we've mentioned briefly is the uh, metallurgy. Um, and it's worth noting that at this time, around about 2400 BC, um, the copper mines in, um, on Ross Island uh, in, in, uh, uh, in Ireland near Killarney, or in Killarney virtually on the... Uh, yeah. Uh, shores of, of the lake there sprang into operation and was the preeminent pre source of copper for quite some time. And spreading far uh, and wide. Spreading far and wide, yes. Um, and uh, beaker burials in Ireland also date from this time, you know, throughout uh, the island, not just in the south there. And I suppose this is apart from the... Uh, um, question of beaker culture itself but how the heck how the heck would you discern where a good place to mine copper was in the first place well i'd imagine that their um first route has got to be what you find in streams the uh, yes but who would be the bloke on the ground yeah mm. who ha would have the knowledge to be able to discern that, well, it's a skill, isn't it? And that would be yes, somebody who. But was... we're talking. But 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 we're 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 talking originally about a Neolithic culture, mm. i.e., a stone culture, 
are they going? They're not going to be the ones that say, "Oi, hello, we found um, some um, copper ores here. Would you like to come over?" Is that going to happen? Um, you see my point. I do. I do. Who was it? We can't answer that question. I know. I'm sorry, <laughs> but it's an interesting one. Who has to be the man on the ground? Who who have to be the people on the ground that um, have the knowledge to be able to discern where a good place for finding copper is going to be? It's that upside down jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? That we mm. it, we find it very difficult to say what came first. Mm. Uh, where did that uh, uh, that little nugget actually come from? I think perhaps we should begin to try and sum up. Um, the stuff that we've brought to this conversation has come from all over the place. And I think that's indicative of the whole problem yes. of anyone looking at this for the first time. There are so many little nuggets from here, there, and everywhere yes. that don't come together into a cohesive hmm. whole. Um, so our apologies if you expected to learn you know, <laughs> about the whole uh, you know, transition of the Beaker culture across Central Europe and into Britain, and to have us uh, to have, and for us to have completely nailed it for you, dear listener, and 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 so you have a complete comprehension of what went before. Right now, it ain't going to happen. No, at this time, it is um, unnailable. Yes, <laughs> but I hope what we've done is be at least tantalising enough in our ignorance. Mm to inspire you to really go and have a look at what was going on here. Because I, I, even now, I find it hard to appreciate how profound this change was. Yes. Uh, and uh, frankly, it's blown my mind. Mm. Um, Would you know, you know it's I, I, I know. it's worth pointing out here that, uh, and you kind of touched on it um, at the beginning, but the fact is that we we talk about these um, historic progressions, if you like. So we've gone through the mm. Mesolithic into the Neolithic and into the Bronze Age. Mm. I mean, you can call, you know, include the Chalcolithic if you like, the Copper Age. But, um, but you know, and, and it's just this this line that we draw uh, that uh, you know, and then moving into the Iron Age and then into history. But the thing is that this is the first time that we talk about a people a culture that – so it fits within these ages. You see, we, we, we can't call it a beaker age. Um, it's, a, mm. it's a culture that fits into that timeline. And it's when you you find that this, this progression that we thought we understood suddenly is completely disrupted by a culture that yeah, sits yeah. Uh, within it. That's what makes Nicely it so put. damn confusing. Mm. Really, but um, but we, you know, we, there will be uh, <laughs> there'll be a number of links on the website uh, for the page notes here. Some of it, I have to say, that some of the more recent, um, particularly scientific articles that are giving uh, some of the granular detail that uh, that Michael was talking about, that um, that some of that, particularly the DNA side of it, is uh, is fascinating reading. Um, and then other stuff, you know, the, the amount of detail we have on the Amesbury Archer, for example, 
Well, you know, yeah. what, what can we extract? And, and the Boscombe Bowmen. And the Don't Boscombe forget Bowman. them. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because... In fact, um, they, worth, they um, they... worth um, also pointing out, in fact, I'll toss it back to you, Michael, that, um, because you're the one that uh, uncovered this, that the Boscombe Bowmen that were thought to have come from Wales... Yeah, but it actually turns out that uh, all the evidence that said that they well that was it was assumed that that meant they came from Wales, but actually there were some options. Well, they had the they? same isotope analysis done on the Tuthana, mm. um, but in their cases it was not so precisely defined. It was with the Amesbury Archer, so much so that um, you had several areas uh, in the British Isles that they could have come from. They could have come from Wales, could have come from Cumbria, but it also matched um, these areas um, from the Lower Rhine, I think, as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, it's, so the the safe bet was to say, oh, and the nearest to say they came from the nearest place, which was Wales. Yeah. But uh, on balance, actually, it is reckoned that they too yes. uh, originated from. Uh, Seems from, much from more likely that uh, they came yeah. from down there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's mm-hmm. <laughs> and there they are, together with the Amesbury Archer. Yeah. You know, barely a few miles from um, you know whatever was going on at Stonehenge. Yeah. And, uh, Durrington Walls. You know, I mean, th- this is the interesting thing. You've got to think about Stonehenge and Durrington Walls as a major, major conurbation in the whole of Western Europe. Yes. Yes. It is a, you know, if you were going to go somewhere to achieve fame and fortune, that's where you would have gone. Capital of uh, if, Neolithic if Bronze you, Age Britain. If you were, exactly. That's what, you know, if you're a travelling person, there was stuff to be seen, stuff, you know, people to do business with uh, there. Mm. Um you know, it all makes sense, mm. um, but uh, something tipped the balance. Yeah, and something again, a, a, a lovely illustration of how things are changing because of modern technology. You know, we would not have known yeah. about the Boscombe Bowmen maybe coming from uh, uh, from down in the Alps uh, or mm. in that mm. region. Anyway, we'd, we'd never have known that that was a possibility without mm. uh, isotope analysis. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. So with apologies for our, our lack of sure-footedness in, in this area, <laughs> but with a hope uh, that our uh, dippings into this will uh, inspire you to uh, further investigations, um, I think uh, we, we should uh, stop yattering right now. Yes, and, uh, <laughs> and get on with other things, before, indeed. Before we start looking really stupid. <laughs> no change there, then. So that brings us to question time. Anything arisen this month, Rupert? Well, you, you'll have to forgive me for this one, seriously. Uh, I, I get asked this quite a lot. And uh, so I, I thought we should just get it out. Exorcise the beast, as it were. What on earth are you talking about? <laughs> well, Simon Thompson from Yorkshire right. sent a question. He asked, yeah. um, I cracked up watching your outtakes. And wondered what on earth it was that you found so funny when you were at Drizzlecoon on Dartmoor. Um, <laughs> um, Michael, would you like to explain the neuroscience of corpsing? <laughs> Just so that I don't look quite so stupid when I say um, nothing, Simon. Nothing was funny no, at all. It, it wasn't. <laughs> Maybe other than the cow. The cow staring right at us just before going to the loo. That was the greatest oh. put down ever. Uh, oh. To a man's working day, but uh, yeah, what did I find uh, well, so funny? Mm. 
I'm mm. not sure I'm going to forgive you at all actually, <laughs> for, for that question. Um, unless you've, for those of you that haven't seen, um, there is <clears throat> a beautiful video, 15 minutes, I think, of outtakes from the filming of Standing With Stones over <laughs> 10 years ago. Uh, in short, if you need cheering up, it's worth finding <laughs> out <laughs> just to watch uh, uh, Rupert Soskin um, cracking up yeah. in all sorts of ways, yeah. uh, in, in, in all sorts of ways possibly imaginable. Consummate professional um, me. I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, but this particular, this particular one on at Drizzlecombe, mm -hmm. um, right in the middle of Dartmoor, um, do you know, this was the thing, I, I, I absolutely get Simon's question, because there was nothing for you to do. There was no script. It was just a shot of you walking through the grass as you approached the uh, little kist. I know. Uh, that's up, the burial kist that, that's up there. You didn't have to do anything. You just had to walk. I know. You just had to walk. Um, <clears throat> and you, you couldn't get two steps without collapsing, without your stomach muscles contracting and you, <laughs> and you giggling like a complete idiot. I know. I can't explain it at all. I really can't. It wasn't funny. Um, well, it was funny. Obviously, it was funny, but <laughs> yeah, there's something quite bizarre about corpsing when uh, you know you're trying to get. <laughs> In fact, if for those of you that have seen the outtakes, it's it's obviously it's it well it's not obvious at all at the Drizzlecombe one. You just you you wouldn't no. know why I was or wasn't laughing, but you can see that that's what I did the same thing. I I kept on corpsing uh, on Formby. Beach mm. when we were looking for the uh, the footprints in the sand. That's right. Yeah, and you just can't explain it. It's just something that suddenly your body just doesn't care what you're trying to do. Um. <laughs> well, I think. I mean, you, you you said you know explain the neuroscience. Well, I don't know if anybody's explained the neuroscience or has a clue if there's any neuroscience to to corpsing, but it invariably takes place um, if you're feeling vulnerable uh, and and something occurs to you as funny, or you get self conscious when you're feeling vulnerable, and it seems the only escape route is to is it's an involuntary thing to to laugh it off. Yes. It, it is astonishing, but it, it can be hysterical. It, it, it gets a hold of you. It gets such a grip of you. And I can tell you about this because I don't know how many of you know, I used to be um, an actor. Um, uh, and many of the time I've been involved on stage with the most appalling um, <clears throat> breakdowns in uh, <laughs> uh, the continuity of the, the, the play or a serious scene or I mean, if I might digress, I mean, the worst instance from my point of view was when I was actually doing a musical in um, called Privates on Parade in Colchester, circa oh. 1978 or something like that. Mm. And, uh, and there was this big musical number and every single one of member of the cast on stage corpsed at the same no. time. Something had set us off in the previous scene and we couldn't stop giggling about it. Have you ever tried laughing and singing at the t same time? It's not going to happen, is it? <laughs> the, 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 the number really 
it was it was appalling. The number really didn't get sung. All you know, the band carried on, but it was gig- a stage of giggling fools <laughs> going through this sort of dance march routine. And oh, dear. Uh, oh dear, did we get a bollocking when we got off stage? Gee whiz! <laughs> anyway, that by the by, as you say, um, consummate yeah. professionals. But, but I, I can't yeah. explain it other than when you've got nowhere to go, when you when you you feel totally vulnerable um you're on display in some form or other um and, and if for an instant the occasion occurs to you as slightly ludicrous or slightly yes. funny you're gone that's it yes. there's no no coming back yeah um i think it's certainly true that i i i never felt vulnerable but i did very often feel self-conscious that's Even when one, it was yeah. just the two of us, yeah. I, I just felt such a twat sometimes. <laughs> um, so that's the worst twattish thing to have to do, isn't it? Walking across <laughs> some Dartmoor grass for no particular reason. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be seen to be yes. believed, anyway. Yes, it, it, uh, yeah, it, uh, happy days. I'm sorry we can't give you a better answer than that, but um, yeah. but hey, we did have fun. <laughs> Yeah, and I do recommend watching the uh, Stanley Stones outtakes if you've not seen it, or even Thanks. watching it again if you've seen it before. Because Thanks, uh, mate. it's a it's a genuine cheer up um, <laughs> uh, solution. Hmm. Yeah. Should we do? Should we yeah, do? Should we do Stone Head of the Month? Yeah, go on. Let's do Stone Head of the Month. Go on. It's time, listeners, the first stone <laughs> head of 2019. Wonderful. Who who have we got this month, Rupert? Hey, brace yourselves. Brace yourselves. The award goes to... Mm. It's Martin Morrison. Martin hey. Morrison, for the wealth of photographs he has posted in the Standing the Stands community over the last month or so, all from the Scottish Isles, uh, there's some fabulous rock art shots from Aaron oh, and yes. Lewis oh, yes. and South Harris. And honestly, Ma- Martin has covered a lot of ground and shared a-, a load of it with all of us. So hats off to Martin, the first stony and well-deserved of 2019. Of 2019. Well done, Martin. Nice one. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I must uh, say uh, those photographs are quite remarkable. Yeah. And uh, we've said this before, say it again. Um, you know, that kind of photography is about being in the right place at the right it time. It's about planning. It's about um, you know, really um, uh, c- committing to something. Um, just going that extra yard that extra mile to uh, getting those kinds of images yeah. and to be fair i mean you know that th- th- there are uh, other uh, photographers um also that are uh, posted from time to time or get posted on the standing with stones community and uh i'm sure they will probably be get acknowledged at some <laughs> some point but uh but martin uh definitely um yeah deserves our um, recommendation. He, he definitely does. Uh, at, yes, at, at this moment, yeah. Uh, which actually is, brings an interesting point. Um, this 
sort of um, speaks to our intent to use the Standing with Stones community uh, as a source for who we're going to be nominating for the uh, Stonehead of the Month uh, award. So we haven't formalised, you know, the ways in which we're going to uh, uh, look at the community for that. But um, yeah, we, we we'll we'll be drawing on on the community, I think, uh, going forward. Yeah. So, yeah, congratulations to uh, to Martin. Yes, Martin. well done, Martin. All right, where does that leave us? So, moving on, well, all of that rolls us to the final moments of podcast number 10. Uh, perhaps a taste of whimsy? Do we have anything whimsical to start the year, Mike? Well, I don't know about whimsical. Uh, actually, it's more about me, me, me putting the grouchy hat on. <laughs> just, oh, a, just a little oh, bit. Good. It's what, twice, twice in, in an episode. episode. Well, it's the second time in the year already. We haven't, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's whimsy in the sense of its ridiculousness. Um, I, and okay. we only came, I only came across this because um, doing a bit of, uh, background research for speaking about the beaker people, beaker culture. Mm. Um, you know, and it's amazing the stuff that I came across online. The the, the cross, the uh, the the conflicting information, the conflicting interpretations of of uh, beaker culture and when it happened and who was responsible for what and all that kind of thing. But this took the biscuit for. You know, and I think you'll probably appreciate this having listened to us talking about the big culture. I'm just going to read this direct from where I found it. And it says this, quote, It is widely thought, although not certain, that bronze was first brought over to Britain by the Bell Beaker folk. Fair enough. They were so named because of the distinctive bell-shaped pottery drinking vessels. They probably came up through the southwest coast of Britain, at which which at the time had rich deposits of copper and tin. Yeah, it may be, but I don't think that's the way they came. The Bell Beaker folk readily mixed with any new culture they encountered, including the Neolithic farmers they found in Britain, and Bell Beakers have been found in megalithic tombs with the henge temples of the Neolithics. What? They improved, okay, the, uh, they improved the existing Temple of Stonehenge. Double what? Well, hang on, hold on. They improved. They improved. They improved the existing Temple at Stonehenge. Did they? Which is, I oh, get this. Which is proof that they got on well with the original inhabitants. <laughs> and at Avebury, they made another great henge monument. This is a large circular ditch and bank, and within it was a ring of standing stones, although these have now gone. Okay, are you still with us? Where, where, where are you reading this drill? Nearby at Silbury Hill stands the largest man-made mon mound in prehistoric Britain, again thought to have been made by the Beaker people. No burial has is been it? found in it. Look, I could, I, could go, I could go on, but where do you begin with something like that, untangling how wrong it is? Do you know where that is, boys and girls? Go on, tell me where that is. That is from the BBC History website. Get off. That is from the BBC History website. The, You're joking. Uh, in, okay. Under ancient history. 
under the title Bronze Age Britain. So, wow. is there a date on it? Sorry, is there a date on it? Yet, no, actually, there isn't. Um, no. I'm quite shocked, actually. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I think it does show why you should. It's got a copy. Uh, it's got a copyright mark at the bottom. So, uh, 2014. Oh, recent enough. Yeah. Okay. Well, it does just show how careful you have to be with stuff that you read. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's and um, you really do. That's that was one of the main discoveries I found, um, searching for information on beacon culture in Britain. Just how confused the information is, uh, and but that, so, that. So as far as that article is concerned, the Beaker people improved Stonehenge, which was proof that they got on well <laughs> and built Stain uh, and and built Avebury. They made another great Henge monument. Built Avebury. I don't know what to say actually. So I don't know what to say. Is that whimsy uh, in the sense that um, it, uh, it's risible? <laughs> um, but it's a bit sad otherwise, isn't it? Well, yeah, that out of, out of all things. And Silbury Hill as well, built by the bigger people. Yeah, uh, of course yeah. it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, maybe, we should, uh, maybe we should ask the BBC uh, to explain this to us. More answers on the postcard, please. No, I think that's very good, Whimsy. Thank you very much. All right, right. Let's uh, let's move along. Move along. And we're move along. Well, the end. Moving along means the end of the program. Yeah. Oh my goodness gracious me! It's been such a joy. <laughs> um, well, I hope it's been a joy for you as well, um, dear listeners, boys and girls. Um, as ever, as ever. If you can, I ask. Um, if you did enjoy this podcast, please consider um, becoming one of our um, Patreon supporters by going mm. to patreon.com forward slash standing with stones and choosing one of the levels of support um, that you can uh, subscribe to, beginning at a dollar a month. Um, Packet of crisps. Packet of crisps. <laughs> dollar a month uh, or five dollars a month or fifteen dollars a month or if you're feeling really outrageous um fifty dollars a month all goes towards helping us make this podcast make new films and generally create wonderful megalithic content indeed it does yeah um helps us be more professional helps us be uh, more on the ball helps us make more stuff basically yeah so please, yeah, do have a look. See if there's a level suits you. And um, we look forward to welcoming you to the team. Uh, yes, and we've got some interesting stuff coming up for our Patreon supporters uh, this year as well. We've got some nice interviews coming up. So Yes, uh, we have. Um, and it's worth mentioning, just uh, tagging on the end here, um, the first film I think that will be coming out, um, there'll be a few weeks yet though, is our film about uh, the Rollwright Stones. Yay. Um, but increasing output as well. Uh, I uh, will be venturing out and about much more often uh, and bringing back uh, film and footage from well all over the place really I'm it's going exciting. to yeah I'll be sticking pins in a map <laughs> and um, yeah finding places out in the depths of the English countryside alright well I think that's it anything more you need to say Mr Soskin I don't think so other than thank you for listening and um, uh, and we'll be back with you again very soon yeah Thank you. Thank you for listening. All the best. Happy New Year. 
Yes, Happy New Year. Take Take care, folks. Bye. Bye. Bye.